Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This story that we just heard is a familiar story. It's so familiar that Good Samaritan has become one of our everyday expressions. But to reclaim it from that everyday, everydayness, we might take a cue from uh, Fuller Professor Joel Green and retitle this story, The Compassionate Samaritan. And given the events that have transpired over the past few weeks in our world, in our nation, we really do need to reclaim this narrative. But the familiarity has caused us to overlook and misunderstand what's going on in this narrative. So what have we missed? What's the significance of this encounter with a Jewish lawyer and the story that Jesus told? Well, first we have to recognize the main theme. It's captured by the repetition of the word do. The lawyer asks, what must I do? Jesus responds, do this. And at the end of the parable, Jesus instructs the lawyer, do likewise. Now you might question why Jesus will reprimand Martha's doing in Luke's next story. Something that we pondered a few weeks ago, but it's interesting that Luke juxtaposes these two stories. Do this, but to Martha, um, just sit at the feet like Mary. I'll leave you to ponder that later. But in this narrative, in order not to miss the point that Jesus is making, we have to begin by understanding the lawyer's question. And to properly understand the lawyer's question, we have to understand the Jewish context in which he asked it. Now, Jesus was probably teaching when this Jewish expert in the law interrupted with his question, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, why did he ask that? He knew the answer. In fact, the verses that he quoted in answer to his own question were inscribed on a piece of parchment and placed within a small black calfskin box that he wore at all times. He knew the answer to the question. But it's important to understand that he was not asking, how do I get to heaven when I die? It may come as a surprise to many folks today, but neither the lawyer nor Jesus nor the Bible poses the question that way. The Christian life is not about going to heaven when we die. So what was the lawyer asking? And frankly, what should we be asking? What the lawyer is asking in the context of his Jewish faith is this. I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the chosen people with whom God made a covenant. But it's clear from the story that God's people have not all, uh, have not all been faithful. Not all of Israel has really been Israel. Some have lost their place among the elect because they have not been faithful to the covenant. So how can I be among the righteous in the age to come? How can I participate forever in the promise that God has made with his people? How can I be part of God's kingdom when it comes to earth 
as it has already been established in heaven. How can I continue to live as God's chosen forever? That's the question. And Jesus' answer is the same that is found in Deuteronomy. Live according to the law. And that is summed up in the two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. If you want to be a child of God, an heir of his promises, don't just practice random acts of kindness. Maybe that was Martha's problem as well as Oprah's. But be shaped by the law of Jesus. In other words, don't hate God or hate, don't love God or hate your neighbor. Don't, don't do that. You should love God, but you should also love your neighbor. Jesus says, do this and you will live. So in this context, we can begin to see that the parable of the compassionate Samaritan is going to teach the lawyer and it's going to teach us how to live as God's kingdom people. Do this and you will live. You'd think that the lawyer should be satisfied. He has a direct answer to his question. It's all there. This is not rocket science. Just do this. Love God. Love your neighbor. And you will live as God's kingdom people. But the lawyer isn't a rocket scientist. That's his problem. No, he's not satisfied. Just do this. So he asks a follow-up question. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I mean, he's just trying to be a good lawyer, right? I mean, if Jews thought that neighbors are the only ones that they're to love, and, 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 and if they had been thinking that neighbors are those within the boundaries of Judaism, and if the lawyer is to love his neighbor, then he wants to be sure that he's defining neighbor correctly. Where should he draw the lines? Where should the boundaries be drawn as far as showing his love? And by the way, the priest in Jesus' parable that's coming up is also an expert in the law. And that's what priests did when they weren't performing religious duties. So the lawyer is going to recognize himself in the story that Jesus is going to tell him. And it's always interesting to ask this question when you hear a parable of Jesus, with which person do I identify? Well, we're told by Luke that the lawyer did this. He asked this question because he's bent on self-justification. He's trying to justify himself by exploiting ambiguity in the law's demands, the definition of neighbor. The word neighbor, it had included fellow Israelites, and it had also included resident aliens, it, those people who uh, embraced the covenant with Yahweh. And so not all of those living where the Jews were living, that is within the boundaries of the Hellenistic world in the Roman Empire, fit that definition of neighbor. And so whom exactly, Jesus, are you telling us we should love? This will be the case not only of missing the point, but it's also a case of misusing theology. It wasn't the first time and it won't be the last time that God's people are tempted to use theology as a means to avoid obedience. We can get so preoccupied with questions such as, did God create the world in 24-hour days? 
Or will Jesus come before or after the millennium? We can get so preoccupied that, that, that we merely give ourselves something to do without really doing anything. Questions are good, but if they are used to delay obedience that God has made perfectly clear, they are not. I have a family member who has finally found his church home, a small clan of people, many of whom are, drive tens of miles every week to rightly divide the scriptures. They've been meeting, doing this for over two decades. They're a happy clan because they dissect the scriptures with a fine razor every week, week after week. But you probably haven't heard of them because that's about all they do. My family member even has a very impressive chart of how all of this is going to work out. But it's like having a map without ever using it to get anywhere. Now, Jesus often has a very indirect way of answering people. You see it in the story of Nicodemus. You see it in the story of the woman at the well, just to name a couple of examples. And he does the same thing here. He doesn't come right out and address the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? But he tells the story. And just think about that. Can you imagine you being on the witness stand and a lawyer asking you a question, asking for a direct answer, and you say, let me tell you a story. Nah. Jesus tells it slant. And so notice how he starts the story in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see, Jesus is already drawing the lawyer's attention away from the victim's nationality or ethnicity or religious identity. It's just a man. All that mattered is that this was a human being who was in great need of medical attention. A man stripped of his clothes and left half half dead, anonymous, simply a human being in need. That's it. And that's what will make the Samaritans act so commendable. He didn't concern himself with this injured man's identity or how he got into this predicament. Maybe questions about his identity and how he got into this predicament were the basis of the priests and the Levites' problem. We don't really know because Jesus never tells us in the story. They just, the priest and the Levite just failed to have compassion and to do an act of mercy. There is no reason given in the parable why those two, the priest and the Levite, came, saw, and passed on the other side. I mean, we make up reasons. Were they concerned about religious defilement that would prevent them from performing their religious duties? Probably not, because they were coming back from Jerusalem. Furthermore, even priests had an obligation to bury a neglected corpse. We just don't know why they passed by, except that they lack compassion enough to perform an act of mercy, and Jesus doesn't give us the prerogative of making excuses. Well, most likely, they simply epitomize a worldview of tribal consciousness with an un-us-them mentality because priests and Levites were people of high status among God's people, not because of what they did, but only because they had been born into the right family. Their legitimacy was given to them by a world 
a social world that they inhabited. And they were recognized for the label that society had given them. And in Jesus' story, they seemed to frame their world according to society's labels. And so before we come down a little bit too hard on the lawyer's motive for asking about the definition of neighbor, we should realize that sometimes we do the same thing. We substitute stereotypes or labels for persons or groups. That way we can look at them at arm's length without ever getting involved with them, without ever loving them enough to find out who they really are, what their history has been, how needy they might be. We've neglected showing love to others because we have them pegged, not as human beings with a history and needs, but as the illegal alien or the liberal or the right-wing conservative or the Muslim or the Baptist. I mean, whatever label you and I have been using for that one class or group of folks that we have trouble loving. I was reminded of how we stereotype and label by, by watching a 1994 interview of Fred Rogers with Charlie Rose just the other week. At one point, Charlie Rose asked Fred about the idea of feeling that we are special, and Fred continued his thought, and knowing you're unique, he said, when you think about it, there has never been another Charlie Rose in all hist the history of humankind, and there never will be. And that's the same with every person you meet. I don't know if you know this, but Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And he got up every morning at 5 a.m. to spend a couple of hours in quiet meditation. And I'm guessing that since he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, some of that meditation included meditation on Scripture. And I think he understood what Jesus was getting at about stereotypes and labels that perpetuate our tribal resistance to loving others. So it probably came as a shock to the lawyer that, the, that, that Jesus made the third person on the scene in this story, the proverbial punchline, the one who's going to be the hero of the story, a Samaritan, because a Samaritan was a label that Jews gave to a group of half-breed heretics whom they considered their ethnic and religious enemies. But again, Jesus is telling this lawyer, stop labeling people. In fact, when we get to the twist in the story, we're going to find out that Jesus is trying to tell this lawyer that it's the Samaritan who is the Jewish lawyer's neighbor. And when you put it in the context of Luke's narrative, this is even more amazing. Because Jesus himself had just been ejected from a Samaritan village after he cured a demoniac back in chapter 9. I mean, the Jewish hatred of Samaritans could be vicious. Just recall the disciples' reaction at the end of that story in chapter 9 in Luke 9, 54, when these Samaritans refused to receive Jesus. The disciples asked this, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus, do you want us to nuke these guys? <laughs> But Jesus turned and rebuked his disciples. In Jesus' world, there are no geographical, ethnic, or even religious boundaries that dictate the extent 
of his compassion. None. I wonder if Jesus' rebuke of the disciples and this subtle chastisement of the lawyer was something like Thomas Merton's reflection about our enemies. It's something I think I've shared with you before, but it's, it's the profound words that, that I recall to myself from time to time. Thomas Merton said, do not be too quick to assume your enemy is a savage just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he's your enemy because he thinks you are a savage. Or perhaps he's afraid of you because he feels that you are afraid of him. And perhaps if he believed you were capable of loving him, he would no longer be your enemy. Do not be too quick to assume your enemy is an enemy of God just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he is your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that gives glory to God. Perhaps he fears you because he can find nothing in you of God's love and God's kindness and God's patience and mercy and understanding of the weaknesses of human beings. Do not be too quick to condemn the man who no longer believes in God, for it is perhaps your own coldness and avarice, your mediocrity and materialism, your sensuality and selfishness that have killed his faith. You know, we've been shaped by our politics our culture, our society, just as the lawyer and the priest and the Levite were shaped by theirs. By contrast, though, the compassionate Samaritan was moved with compassion. In other words, his action was a manifestation of his disposition, a character that had apparently been shaped by the kind of worldview that Jesus taught. And then finally, we come to the most significant reason why we so often misunderstand and misuse this parable. Did you notice that when Jesus got to the end of his story, he never really answers the lawyer's question? He never answers it. Jesus knew that as long as we keep asking to define who the neighbor is, we will continue to make excuses for not getting to know that person and meeting their needs. And so Jesus refuses to address the lawyer's question, and he turns the question around. The lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' question to the lawyer in verse 36 is, who acted like a neighbor? The question should not be, whom can I label as my neighbor, but to whom can I be a neighbor? And as soon as you ask the question the way Jesus puts it, you are already seeking to do an act of love to whomever you meet. The lawyer's question wants to know the bounds of race and religion before acting in love. Jesus' rephrasing of the question wants only to know the next opportunity to get into action. The lawyer wants to know who qualifies as the recipient of his love. And Jesus wants to know who is eager to be the giver of love. It's because Jesus turns the lawyer's question upside down that the lawyer and we who are baptized into Christ Jesus can no longer say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You and I cannot say that. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
a chip off the old block. So that you can live like those who inherit the life that God wants to give you. You see, Jesus got rid of the distinction between enemy and friend when it came to showing neighborly love. The lawyer tries to reintroduce that definition, that distinction. But now Jesus teaches that neighbor love knows no boundaries. I mentioned Fred Rogers a bit ago. I watched the Charlie Rose interview because I was looking for a different story, one that Linda Parisi put, uh, put me onto a while back. It's about Francois Clemens, who played the role of a black police officer on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So check this out. Nearly everyone remembers Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It's a beautiful day in this But not everyone knows that this cardigan-clad king of children's TV, Fred Rogers, was actually a pioneer who challenged racial stereotypes in media. Enter Francois Clemens. Francois Scarborough Clemens. And his role as Officer Clemens made him one of the first recurring black characters on a children's TV show. When I started, there were two, three shows, period, on television that employed a black character. Francois grew up during the civil rights movement and times of great racial tension in the U.S. So when Fred asked me to be a police officer, Fred, are you sure? Do you know what policemen represent in the community where I was raised? And then he started talking about children needing helpers and the positive influence that I could have for young children. My heart opened as I listened to him. He accepted the role not knowing he would end up playing Officer Clemens for 30 years. And one of his most memorable scenes is also one of his favorites. There are many ways to say I love you. It's a very big deal for me to be putting my feet in the water with Fred. During a time of segregation, the symbolism wasn't lost on Francois. To say that he uh, didn't know what he was doing or that he accidentally stumbled into integration or talking about racism or sexism, that's not Mr. Rogers. It was well planned and well thought out, and I think it was very impactful. There are many ways to say I love you. That impact was felt by many, but for Francois, it was personal. I was in the studio one day. That particular day, he was filming the end of the show, and when he got to the part, he said, you make every day a special day. You know how, by just your being you. And I swear it was like, it was looking right into my eyes. And when the music stopped, I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I have been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. When Fred Rogers put his feet in that pool of water with that black man, that was an era in which uh, whites were putting acid in swimming pools so that blacks wouldn't swim in their pools. And then he washed and wiped his feet. In other words, Fred Rogers demonstrated Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, how do I inherit eternal life? Or how do I live as a child of the Father? How do I live for eternity as a child of God? of the God of compassionate covenantal faithfulness that the lawyer was concerned to be on, on, on the end with who 
while we were yet enemies, died for us. The compassionate Samaritan, that Samaritan, he's a socio-religious outcast. He is excluded not only from his race and by his race and ethnicity, but also he's excluded because of his religion. For the Jewish lawyer, he's a heretic. But Jesus told his disciples just before they entered that Samaritan village in Luke chapter 9, those who are not part of our group but who are doing good in the name of Jesus should be allowed to continue doing good in Jesus' name. And the Samaritan is not only a heretic, he's just a traveling merchant. He's not a holy man. He's just a guy who came and saw and was moved with compassion and he went to the wounded man and he cared for him. And so what distinguishes him from the other two is not that he is a Samaritan and they are Jews. Not that he has no religious status and that they do. But that he has a compassion-driven action to play out. And they pass by and refuse to do an act of mercy. The Samaritan does exactly what the lawyer asked Jesus when he asked about inheriting eternal life. The Samaritan participated in the compassionate, covenantal faithfulness of God. He, steps, he stops on a treacherous road to assist a man he doesn't know with his own goods and money, with no expectation of reciprocation. And get this, even accepting the possibility of extortion because he leaves his credit card at the end for this anonymous man. That's in the story. I just paraphrased it. The one who acts as a neighbor ensures even the survival of the one in need, even if that one is an enemy. The Samaritan promises to pay whatever cost is incurred to ensure the, that the one to whom he has shown mercy is healed. Why? Because Jesus died to ensure the eternal survival of his enemies, us, even before we made a move toward him. Jesus finished his dialogue with the lawyer by commanding him, go and do likewise. If you're a disciple, if you are a literal follower of Jesus this morning, his command is the same. Go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, let's apply the right labels. Every person, without exception, is a human creature of God made in God's image, for whom Jesus Christ died. And then let's start asking the right question. How can we be shaped into the kind of people who are truly the inheritors of the kind of world that God is redeeming for eternity? Did you notice that Luke never tells us how the encounter with the lawyer ended? We don't know. Did the lawyer respond positively to what Jesus taught him? That he should be a neighbor to anyone in need, no matter how alien that person might be? But then if we get too caught up in that question, we might just end up avoiding the real question this morning for us. Will we draw near to those who, for whatever reason, racial, ethnic, theological, political, may seem alien to us.
If we do, it could be a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And so I leave us with that question, and I leave you for just a moment to ponder what Paul told the Colossians. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Amen.